Hey, we want to thank you for listening today to a sermon from Edwards Lake Church. And we hope that you recognize the message of God as we open his word together and examine his incredible life-changing teaching. We pray that this message will challenge you, motivate you, or touch you in some way. Let's open the Bible together. If you would open your Bibles up to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. What was it that made David somebody who fulfilled the purpose of God in his generation? Certainly it started with that humble heart. He understood himself to be among the lowly. His physical stature, the way everybody responded to him, everything about his, the enemies he had to go up against made him understand his lowliness, and it humbled him, uh, clearly. But that wasn't all that drove him to fulfill the purpose of God in his generation, to do all God's will, to be a man after God's heart. He had a humble mind, but he also had a perspective on what his life was about. Sometimes we may have a humble mind, but you go, okay, I'm humble, and that's it. And you kind of just live in this little vortex of your own little life, not thinking that there's anything outside of that that, um, that you're supposed to be a part of, or you're supposed to be accomplishing or doing. Psalm 34 in these first couple of verses give us sort of a mission statement of David. I will bless the Lord at all times. That's what my life's going to be about. The victory that God gives me, it's not going to be for me. It's going to bless and honor and exalt God in all the things that I say, in all the things that I do, in all the things that I am. His praise will continually be in my mouth. Whenever I'm talking, I'm going to be talking about God. It's not just that, but it's going to go down to the depths of who I am. My soul, the core and the the thing where all of my person is tied together, will make its boast in the Lord. And the humble are going to hear it, and they're going to rejoice in this. And it's not just me. Part of me blessing the Lord at all times is I'm going to be actually evangelistic. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Come, let us exalt his name together. This is a beautiful psalm, and we're going to come back to it in a few minutes to explore the rest of what David has to say here. Not really explore, but but just observe briefly what he says in the rest of the psalm. But I'd like you to note for a second the little um, superscript at the top of the psalm. You notice that? We have a number of these. For instance, this is why a lot of the psalms we know as psalms of David, because they'll say, a psalm of David. And sometimes, not very often, but sometimes... Those psalms will actually tell us the circumstance surrounding the writing of the psalm. Here's what it says. A psalm of David, when he feigned or pretended madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. That's kind of weird. You read verses 1 through 3 and you're like, a psalm of David, after he won a great battle against the Philistines and destroyed them and... Nope. David had been pretending to be a crazy person and he was driven away by Abimelech. 
which was a title for the Philistines, kind of like Pharaoh, Caesar, Abimelech, a king of the Philistines, drove him away. And that's when David wrote this psalm. What I'd like to do is actually look at the story that leads up to the writing of this psalm and try to see what lessons we can learn so that we could learn what David did and say with him that we will be people after God's own heart, that we will be people who will do his will, that we will be people who serve the purpose of God in our generation by saying, I will bless the Lord at all times. 1 Samuel 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18. This is a little bit imaginative, and, and I am not asking you what you think David felt, but I'm just asking you for you. How would you have felt after Goliath? Uh, let me read a little more, actually, of, of other things that happened. I'd really like you to think about this, and let's talk about it a little bit. What would go through your mind and your heart? You've been anointed as the future king of Israel. You've led this great victory. Not only did you personally take down the giant, but you led a great victory for all of Israel. In um, 1 Samuel chapter 18, it says, Now it came about when David had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan, the son of the king, loved David as himself. Saul took him that day and didn't let him return to his father's house. No more keeping sheep for this guy. This is somebody who's important. Then Jonathan, the son of Saul the prince of Israel, made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of his robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. David receives all the, uh, all the accoutrements of royalty here. So David went out wherever Saul sent him. He's kind of Saul's chief uh, general now, getting sent out on these battles and such. And wherever he, he went out wherever Saul sent him, and he prospered. And Saul set him over the men of war. And it was pleasing in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. It happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, with musical instruments. Well, you know, whenever uh, our favorite sports teams win, what do we do when they come home? We have a big parade. And people have tambourines and sing songs and chants and are acting crazy and happy and all that sort of stuff. Uh, what we do in a more peaceful way is what people would do after they would win great battles of war in ancient times and even other parts of the world even today. Anyway, the women sang as they played. And they said, and remember, you're David. You're a part of this deal. Saul's coming in. No doubt David would have been present for this as he was a part of the battle as well. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. All right, stop right there. You're there in the parade. And that's the song. They keep on, the DJ keeps putting it on repeat. That's the song that everybody's listening to. Everybody's celebrating. Your best friend now is the prince of Israel. The king has called you into his personal service, to be his special ops forces leader, to go out and win all these battles. You defeated Goliath, and Eliab, he can't say nothing to you now. Big brother's got nothing to say. If you were in David's shoes, and I'm not saying for us to import what we think David thought, but if you were in David's shoes, what would this moment be like? Just tell me, what would you think? What would you feel? What would, you, uh, what would your life look like at this point compared to back when you were with the sheep back at dad's house in Bethlehem? What's changed? What's going on inside of you at this point, if you were in David's shoes? 
Sorry? Overwhelmed. Good. So, so tell, tell me more what you mean by overwhelmed. Yeah. Yes. This is, I'm usually the one singing the songs, and I just sing to sheep. You know, this is kind of weird. Tell me more. What do you mean? These girls have never even met me, and they love me already. Not just because I'm cute, because I'm a warrior, right? Go ahead. I love that. I think that's how a lot of us would think. Things weren't great for a while. I was just a kid in that even my own family didn't think much of. But now, and it's just going to keep on going up, you know? It's only going up from here. Other thoughts as far as if you were in David's shoes, what you might think or feel or, or how you would view your life or whatever. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it is kind of like this dream. I mean, it's a, and that's why, because it's a dream come true. That's, it can't be real. This is stuff I'd imagine, you know, that there's no way this is happening. Yeah. I, we don't know what David felt, but certainly if, if we were in his shoes, we would experience these sorts of things. And, and the reason why everyone's so readily able to kind of offer these things is on a tiny, tiny, tiny scale, Maybe you have felt that to some extent. Whenever their things have gone well, whenever there have been great victories, whenever you are, you know, you're, you're, things are kind of looking up. You kind of feel that way. Wow, I didn't expect this. It feels kind of weird, and it's great, and I do feel like I've kind of arrived. And I don't, but I, it looks like it's just getting better all the time. And everybody loves me, and this is great. Uh, of course, you know those of you who know the story, and if you cheated and read the very next sentence. It doesn't go that way. The next several chapters uh, are a mixture of two things. One, everything running off the rails in David's life circumstances. And secondly, David having a hard time figuring out how to respond. I'm going to mostly just tell the next part of the story, um, but I'd encourage you to read it but just for sake of time, which I already messed us up on last time. We're going to try to run a little faster this time. Uh, I'm just going to summarize some things, and you can go back and read it and, and see the actual word of the Lord for yourself on this. Uh, Saul becomes very jealous, envious of David. Um, he concocts several different plans to actually bring David low. So for one, he, uh, of course, the one who defeated Goliath was promised to marry into the royal family. And so Saul promises David a wife, but then he sends uh, David away on some battles thinking, oh, I'll get him killed by the Philistines. And then he gives David's wife away to another man. Uh, and then he's like, well, uh, you can have my daughter, my other daughter, uh, Michael, or Michal, or however you say it. And, of course, really the purpose of that, the text tells us, was, again, Saul was hoping, oh, I'll trip him up, because I'll tell, and David says, listen, actually, I don't really belong in your family. I don't have the money to pay the dowry for this. I'm a nobody. I don't, I don't deserve to be in your family like that. And Saul says, hey, don't worry about it. Just go kill a, a bunch of Philistines and bring me back proof, and then, boom, we'll, we'll call it even. And Saul's mind thinking... This is how I'll get David killed. Well, of course, Saul was a fool. God was with David. If the, if the, the Goliath story didn't teach him anything, and it didn't, uh, he, he missed the lesson. So David comes back. He actually marries uh, Michael. 
Saul is still angry. Saul actually, besides all of this, there was an occasion where Saul, as David was playing the harp to serve Saul and to bless him, Saul took a spear that was nearby and threw it to try to pin him to the wall and kill him. Uh, David escaped and didn't lead a coup d'etat, didn't uh, rebel against Saul, didn't abandon and say, you know, I'm going back to the sheep until God takes Saul out and then I'll come. No, he just kept on going. But anyway, things were getting bad. I mean, the king is... Uh, manipulating circumstances, sending you into battles, hoping that you'll be killed. He's personally attacking you. And then on another occasion in 1 Samuel 19, we're told that Saul sent essentially assassins to come to David's house to take him so that he would be killed. Um, David's wife ends up sending him out another way, and they kind of put a goat skin in the bed to make it seem that she answers the door, uh, and she says, oh, he's sick. Which is weird to me that the guys who are, you know, like I said, basically assassins, they say, okay, we'll come back later. I'm like, you guys are not very good at your job. But anyway, so they, they leave and it's all this kind of thing. But anyway, it comes out what, what actually happened. And, uh, and so, and David's on the run, which, by the way, means that not only are you not the one they're singing the songs about so much anymore, the king, who you are trying to help and serve and honor, you say that you are his servant. He personally has tried to kill you. He's manufactured and manipulated circumstances to lead to your death. He sent people to take you away, to kill you. And by the way, as you've run away, you've left behind your young wife there in the house. And he's a crazy man because he's not only tried to kill you, but he actually has tried to kill your brother-in-law and your best friend, Jonathan. Jonathan, through this whole circumstance, was saying, listen, David, no way. I'm not going to let my dad do this. And he wouldn't do it anyways. He would never do that and not tell me about it. David, in 1 Samuel 20, he and, he and Jonathan go back and forth about this. And he says, look, I'm telling you, he's, your dad has is, is gone off the rails and he's coming after me. So Jonathan, I'll tell you what, go hide in the field. And I'll go back. There's supposed to be this essentially state dinner where all the you know, officials are supposed to be there with Saul. And we'll, uh, I'll talk to him. And I'll come out and we'll have, they set up this little signal and I'll let you know what's going on. Well, much to Jonathan's chagrin, David was correct, of course. Saul was plotting this. And actually it got so bad, Saul ends up, when you read the text, I think in, in our English translation of this thing, it's a little softer. But I mean, Saul speaks in, basically curses the name of Jonathan's mother, calling her evil names. Uh, he threatens Jonathan, his own son threatens Jonathan, and Jonathan leaves in anger knowing that it was, it was true. So Jonathan and David go and meet, and it's their last time together, really. Uh, they embrace, they cry, and they walk away from each other thinking that's probably it. Turns out they would see each other later, but that's another story. Now imagine where you're at with David. All that good stuff that had happened has come crashing down in the worst ways possible. What's, what's going to happen to you? And did God mean what he said? Because when the prophet Samuel came, he anointed me, said I was going to be the king of Israel. And then, I mean, it kind of looked like things were, I was getting in the royal family. I mean, I defeated the Philistine. All the people respect me even more than Saul. And I'm being respectful and I'm waiting my turn. But I mean, it looked like we were just on the path. But now I'm on the most wanted list. I'm public enemy number one. The king is, is directly, he's amassing all his forces to come after me. That's what it's all about. And what's going to happen to Jonathan? I mean, Saul already tried to kill him once. What, this man who I love, I mean, he's like 
the friendship we share is greater than any romantic love we've ever found. That's how deep this bond is that we have as brothers. And besides Jonathan, what's going to happen to my, my wife that I left back at the house? What's, if Saul would do this to Jonathan, what's he going to do to her? And God, why aren't you, why would you let this happen? How could all this have happened? A, a lot of times, whenever things go well for us, they don't keep on going well. And then is, um, then we got to decide what we're going to do. So go to 1 Samuel chapter 21. And let's see what David did. 1 Samuel 21. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came trembling to meet David. And he said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has commissioned me with a matter. And he he said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you and, and with which I have commissioned you. And I've directed the young men to a certain place. So if we can just say, David says something that is not true. He lies. Now, therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or, or whatever can be found. The priest answered David and said, there's no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated bread. If only the young men have kept themselves from women. David answered the priest and said to him, Surely women have been kept from us as previously when I set out, and the vessels of the young men were holy, though it was an ordinary journey. How much more than today will their vessels be holy? By the way, he's expanding his lie now. He's, he's even bigger. Like, this is so important. Of course, uh, the men who weren't with him have, have kept themselves holy and all that stuff. So the priest gave him consecrated bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. Not only is David saying things that are not true, uh, he also is taking the consecrated bread. I realize this is a debated question as far as whether what David did was okay or not okay, right or wrong. Here's what I'll say. Whenever Jesus gives commentary on this, what he says is that what David did was not lawful. So at the very least, uh, we can say that. What David did was not lawful. How God viewed that and how God, whatever. I know David made a choice that was against God's law here. Not only that, it says, Now one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. And David said to Ahimelech, uh, Now, is there not a spear or a sword on hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's matter was urgent. Then the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, behold, It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you would take it for yourself, take it, for there is no other except it here. And David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. Let me pause and open it up right here. What do you find noteworthy about this, this little exchange about David's inquiring about weaponry and then it being the sword of Goliath? What what do you think is noteworthy about this in the text? Interesting, strange, surprising, or whatever. Sorry? It is weird that before, he didn't feel the need to tote it around like it was anything too special before. That's one thing. What else do you think is interesting about this little exchange? 
And maybe, by the way, contrast this with the last time David talked about swords and spears and stuff like that. What was David's attitude about swords and spears? I don't need those. Back in 1 Samuel 17, when he was lowly and humble and all that, I don't need swords and spears. Give me some rocks out of the brook, the smooth ones. I don't even need the chunky ones, the, the rough ones. Give me the smooth ones. It's fine. But here, he's pretty eager to ask for a sword or a spear. And then what, what does he say about Goliath's sword? None like it. Which, I don't think it's like, oh, it's such a weird sword. I guess I'll take it. I don't think that's the point. There is none like it. This is, I mean, a special sword. The last owner of that sword, how much good did it do him? His own head got chopped off with it. The bloodstains on it were his own bloodstains. You see what's happening? This is strange, honestly. David lies. He does something that's against God's law. And then he's trusting in weapons of, of material weapons, right? That's, that's what he's looking for. That's what he's eager to. By the way, who is he talking to again? What's, what's, the, what's the individual, Ahimelech, what's his job, what's his gig? He's a priest. What do you think would be the first thing you do when you go to a priest? Who has the ephod? It's noteworthy there also that the priest is, uh, it's be, it, it is behind the ephod. The ephod was something they would use to inquire of God. What could David have said to Ahimelech, the priest, who had the ephod there? What could David have done or asked for or said? Hey, what does God say I need to do here? Even if he didn't think God was going to give him some message, he could have at least said, hey, could you please pray for me? But it doesn't happen. He doesn't ask for prayers. He doesn't ask for guidance. He doesn't say, would you inquire the Lord of me? He makes up a lie. He does something against God's law to satisfy his hunger and sustain his body. And he takes the sword of Goliath. What happened? This guy who had slain his ten thousands when he was lowly in his own eyes. But actually, it actually gets even worse, honestly. The text goes on to say that David arose and fled. Remember back in chapter 17, David wasn't fleeing. David was attacking. But now, David is fleeing. He fled that day from Saul and he went to Achish, king of Gath. It seems like Achish is the proper name for this king. The, the Philistines, uh, their country was made up of five city-states. Gath was one of them. By the way, same place that Goliath was from. And uh, David goes there, and Achish is the name of the man. Abimelech, from Psalm 34, is the title. So uh, Abimelech Achish, or, you know, we say Pharaoh Nico, or uh, Julius Caesar, that kind of thing. So that's why you see a difference in the names. Anyway, uh, it says, but the servants of Achish said to him, is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Like, listen, we've heard this Israelite song on Spotify. We don't want this guy here. This guy's slain the ten thousands. We've got to get him out. And so David took these words to heart. And this is where, okay, now, 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 now David's going to take the sword. He's going to remember what happened with Goliath. You know what? Just like God used this sword to bring about victory among the Philistines, I'll do it again. And he rose up there in the castle, and he, he cut off the head of the king, and he defeated the army of the Philistines, and he, he, he gave praise to God and all that. That's what you would expect. Because he took the words to heart. Of course, he's a man after God's own heart, so he's going to respond the right way. 
But he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely, just in case you didn't know what disguise your sanity meant. The Spirit makes sure we understand. He acted insanely in their hands. And he scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I like madmen that you brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? In other words, get him out of here. You notice how many times, what does Achish, how does he refer to David? Again, I think the spirit here is really hammering us with the repetition here. Calls him a madman, what is, or the text records that he calls him a madman uh, three times. Three times. In just like two sentences. He lies. He violates God's law. He doesn't ask the priest for any kind of spiritual guidance or wisdom or help. He does ask for and reaches out to grab this tool of the world, this weapon of the flesh. And then he flees to the Philistines, which is horrible on a couple levels. One, he's leaving God's people. Look, he's the anointed king of Israel. He needs to be there for his people, but he leaves them to go to the Philistines. And, and by the way, he's going to do that later in his story, but it seems with much different motivation and a much different posture and a much different uh, attitude because here he's clearly going for refuge. He wants to be received into the house of Achish so that he will be protected there because that's what he's doing this whole time is protecting himself. But here's what I want to say. To go to the Philistines isn't just to defect to, from to another country because we live in a more secular part of the world in a secular time in history, or at least we, we say that. Uh, we just think, oh, yeah, it's bad to abandon your country. But understand that for these people to go from one country to another, these countries were ruled by their gods. And whether David consciously thought it or not, for him to leave Israel and to come to the Philistines was an implicit uh, exaltation of the Philistine gods over his own God. To say, well, I can, you know, I'm not safe here. My God won't protect me here. But perhaps you, ruled by your gods, can protect me here. This is disturbing. One, because it's such a sharp turn from what we saw in David just literally a few minutes ago in what we looked at in the earlier scripture. And how could somebody like this be a person who fulfilled the purpose of God in his generation? Be somebody who did all of God's will. Be a man after God's own heart. Maybe even just to bring it down a little more to the ground. How could somebody like this, on this occasion, Write the words that we read in Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. <clears throat> Excuse me, David, do you not remember the past couple weeks? All times? How about right now in this times? You are not blessing the Lord. Or you haven't been. There's an interesting thing that happens in 1 Samuel 22 that I think leads us right back to Psalm 34 and uh, will help us kind of bring this together. It says, so David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. Everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. And he became the captain over them. Over, if we can refer to what we just got done talking about a few minutes ago, he became the captain of the lowly. People in debt, people are frustrated people who are hopeless and have nothing going right for them. That's David's little army. And there are about 400 men. 
with him. Can you picture that scene? David sitting in that cave. His brothers coming to see what's going on. Seems like they've had a little change of their mentality. And then all these people start showing up. People that are frustrated. You could hear the conversation. Their disappointment, their disenchantment, their fears, their concerns. Is God really with us? He gave us this king, and this king is a madman now, and he's running the the economy into the ground, and he's destroying us. And David, he's been attacking you and all this kind of stuff. I think what we see here is the moment, the location, the circumstances that drove David to write the words that we read in Psalm 34. Go back there. Let's try to bring this home a little bit. Here's the deal. Uh, We would love to be people that would say, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. We need to be people who serve the purpose of God in our generation to make his name known, to point people to Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's the real thing that will make our lives matter and mean something when we understand our purpose in life. Not only to have an attitude of humility, a heart of humility, but if we're going to be able to fulfill the purpose of God, we need to take God's purpose into our minds. This is what I'm living for. And that's Psalm 34, is David's purpose statement. This is what my life is all about. But he had to learn that after the success, after the difficulties, and after his own mistakes in how to deal with the problems in his life. One of the biggest things that gets us off track of fulfilling the purpose of God in the world is we get off track with the bad things that happen, the hardships that we face, especially when there's hardships that we didn't expect, right? That's, I think, an even harder thing. There's some things you can, we even have a phrase, you kind of brace for impact. It's like, all right, I can get through that. But whenever things go badly when I thought they were going to go so well, that's when it's the hardest to keep on going, to remember our purpose, to bless the Lord at all times, to exalt his name in the world, to, to proclaim the good news about him. Psalm 34 is David's uh, little sermon about God's greatness. Verse 4, he recounts his story. Verses 1 through 3 that we read are just kind of the the prologue to this whole thing that bring out this purpose statement that he had been reminded of though he had forgotten about it when he went to the priest and when he picked up the sword and when he was disobeying God's law and when he was going to the Philistines, all those bad things where he forgot about it as he sat in that cave and he saw these people, he was reminded of what his life was supposed to be about. Verse 4, I sought the Lord and he, he answered me. And he delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant. And their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man, the guy who slain ten thousands, yeah, this poor man cried. And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. And now he calls on us. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. He's preaching now. He's not just reflecting. He's not just telling his little purpose statement. He's going to bless the Lord. He's preaching to us. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, 
but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Did David remember that when he went to the priest? No, he thought, I am going to be hungry. I've got to take care of myself. Whatever I've got to do, I've got to preserve my life. But now he's reflecting on it and said, no, that was stupid. That was wrong. God provides for me. God takes care of me. If I will seek him, I'm never going to suffer want. I'm never going to suffer hunger. And that's why I'm here now and I'm remembering that my life is meant to bless the Lord at all times. Not to protect myself, not to preserve my life, not even for, to preserve other people necessarily. I'm doing that so that I'll bless the Lord at all times, to bring honor to him, to magnify him, and to bring others to do the same. Come, you children. And it's so easy to see this in that cave with that army of discontented, disenchanted, frustrated people. Come, my children. Listen to me. I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. And then he outlines all the things that he did wrong and tells us that we should do right. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? A bunch of hands go up. All those people in debt and just frustrated, all that stuff. Okay, how are we going to do it? Verse 13. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. David wasn't just pulling out a random little ethical instruction here. He's saying, you know what one of the tricky things is whenever things get hard and you start protecting yourself rather than blessing the Lord at all times, fulfilling the purpose of God in your generation. You're going to end up using your speech not for God, but to protect yourself and to provide for yourself. Don't do that. Don't let your lips speak deceit. Don't speak evil. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Where had David departed? He had departed from Israel, the place where he was supposed to be serving God. And what had he pursued? The Philistines for protection and for help. He says, no, don't do what I did, guys. Seek peace in the Lord. Do good in his name. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears. When you're out there trying to fulfill God's purpose, when you're out there trying to do God's will, sometimes it's not going to go the way you thought, and it's easy to think God's not paying attention. God doesn't care. God's not going to come through. Not true. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears. The Lord, verse 18, is near to the brokenhearted. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. There's a noteworthy thing about this psalm of, of repentance and of uh, exhortation and preaching of purpose that David gives us. I'm not going to go through all of it, but I'm just going to highlight a couple of things here. And this will be a fun little Bible study thing if you want to do it. Sometime go take Psalm 34 and have it open, print it out on a piece of paper, and then go read uh, the book of 1 Peter. And what you'll note is that the book of 1 Peter is just a stretched out version of Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how Peter starts his letter. Uh, verse 8. You recognize verse 8 from 1 Peter? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. 1 Peter chapter 2 says that we should long for the pure milk of the word like newborn babies. And then he says, if 
you have tasted that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, verse 8. A lot of what Peter talks about is uh, the struggle between righteous people living among the wicked. He calls the people in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, and again in chapter 5, and I think it's verse 13, exiles. Begins and ends the book and says, you are exiles. David's living in a cave. He's an exile. And the exile, of course, is righteous people living in a world that's filled with wickedness. That's the theme here at the end of this psalm. Yes, you're living righteously and the wicked are attacking you, but Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 4, hey, look, don't be surprised when this fiery trial comes among you. And if judgment is to begin in the house of God, what will be of those who are the wicked, those who are in the world? I mean, there's just so many more, so many, so many more. But I do want to make this point from the book of 1 Peter as we tie it here, as we tie this to us. In the midst of that letter where Peter said a lot of things, oh, sorry, one more thing. Actually, verses uh, 12 through 14 are quoted smack dab in the middle of 1 Peter in chapter 3. Right before he talks about uh, that, that famous verse, sanctify Christ in your hearts as Lord, always being ready to give an answer to those who would ask you about the hope that's within you, he quotes this passage, Psalm 34, very directly. Uh, on and on and on. This, Psalm 34 is what's on Peter's mind. And what he's telling us as Christians is, hey, Christian, the lesson that David learned is a lesson we need to learn. That life isn't always going to go exactly the way we want. But we have to stay focused on what we're doing here. Us humble people are winning these victories not for us, but as we go out fighting for God, it's for him. That we would bless the Lord at all times. That we would make his name known in the world that people would see and hear us as we go through whatever it is, and we don't complain like the world does. We don't do things like the world does, uh, fomenting rebellion against the government or even speaking ill of the government, frankly. And I don't know what you are, if you're a rebeller or if you're a complainer, but whichever it is, you've got to stop it, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. It's not allowed. Just submit and honor the king because we don't trust in that stuff anyways. And, and on the job, whenever things aren't going quite right and you're frustrated and all that sort of thing, you just work hard working for the Lord. And I know your spouse is not that great, but in Jesus Christ, you got to treat them right. Wives submitting, husbands being understanding. And whenever you're dealing with your brethren who mess around all the time and hurt your feelings and they're just not much fun to be with, you treat them with kindness and compassion and humility and be understanding and harmonious. Why are we doing that, Peter? Well, he says it in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 with these words that really are just an echo of David's words from Psalm 34. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, he says this, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Well, it doesn't much feel like it. We're exiles out in the world, and we're getting beat down by the politics, and the job doesn't make it very easy to serve the Lord, and my spouse isn't even a Christian, or they don't encourage me in my faith or whatever. I don't feel like royalty. I don't feel like a special possession of God. Well, okay. I didn't say you felt like it. I said you are one. And you got to learn to see it like David, that he was the anointed king. He wasn't threatened. He wasn't in danger while Saul was attacking him. He was the king. Why has God done this for us? Verse 9. So that you may proclaim his excellencies, the one who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For once, you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
From once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So, beloved, I urge you, kind of like David said, come, my children, listen to me. Peter says, beloved, family of God, I urge you, as aliens and strangers, to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Keep your behavior excellent. Seek peace. Do good. Keep your lips from speaking evil. All that stuff among the Gentiles, among the nations, so that the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. That we would live lives, that we would open our lips, that we would be the kind of people that bless the Lord at all times, especially the bad ones, especially the times that you didn't think were going to come, especially the times where it all falls apart. You bless the Lord at all times. Proclaim his excellencies. Don't live like the world. Don't run to the Philistines for protection. Don't pick up the weapons of this world. Don't speak in a way that's opposite to what you really are in Christ. You bless the Lord at all times. Let his praise continually be in your mouth. That's what we're here for. And that's, I'll say, one of the best things, one of the best opportunities we have with all the difficulties that we face is we have a totally different way of looking at it because we're seeking the Lord. And we know that he's not going to leave us. He's not going to abandon us. And whatever may happen, Psalm 34, verse 20 is true. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. I wonder if when David preached this little sermon in Psalm in that cave, if people looked around and they were like, that bones thing was kind of weird. The rest of it was good, but I don't know why we're talking about bones getting broken. Of course, you know why David, being a prophet, wrote that not a single bone would be broken. When you're going through your darkest time, know that God is with you. And your job in that moment is to bless him. Just like not only David learned to do, but like our Lord did all the way through. Jesus even died on that cross. Again, back to 1 Peter, the model for all the behaviors and all the ways we live, Peter says, is supposed to be like Jesus. 1 Peter 2 and verse 21, For Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you would follow in his steps. His steps were ones of darkness and trial and rejection and abuse and death. But not one of his bones were broken. And on the third day, he was raised up. He emerged out of the darkness of death and into the light of life with the Father. He blessed the Lord. Jesus truly blessed the Lord at all times. Even on the cross, the praises of God were in his mouth. That's what we're here for, y'all. That's what we're fighting for. That's why we strive for the humility that we saw in David, the humility that we see most of all in Christ. We're striving every day to learn to bless the Lord at all times, no matter what may happen. I don't know where you're at with the Lord. I think we're going to sing a song here in just a second to encourage us all to reflect upon our commitment to him. And in particular, I'd like to encourage you to think about your commitment to this, to being somebody that doesn't just go to God for help when you're in trouble, but you stay loyal to God even when you're in trouble and when things are hard, not for your own sake, but for his sake, to make his name known to our friends and neighbors who need the salvation that we enjoy in him. It may be that you need some prayers for something. It may be that you need to come to the Lord and repent of your sins and be baptized. That'd be amazing. Whatever it is, I hope we'll think about it. I hope we won't leave this room before we get what we need. Let's stand and sing. Hosanna, you're my king.
Thanks for listening and studying God's word with us. We want to help you draw closer to Jesus as your Lord. If you feel some need as a result of today's message, whether that be a need to seek God's salvation or you are just in the need of prayers, please reach out to us. You can find out more about us, including contact information at edwardslakechurch.org. If you want to continue to open God's word with us, please check out other sermons on our podcast or come visit with us at Edwards Lake Church anytime you can. Thanks again, and we pray God's blessings for you.